Dear Jeff, I entered the contest to win the elephant a few weeks ago. But if winning the elephant means I have to have that silly looking hat on it, I don't want it. Please keep me in contention for winning the elephant, but please keep the hat or send it back to the trash it was pulled out of. What's that? I'm reading it real time right now. Here's another. Alabama who? Oh, here's another. Do they have a school in Alabama? Here's another. Tell Richard to sit down. No, no, here's another. He's got... What? 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 Oh, and that name was turned in, actually, as a candidate to win. It didn't make it. But it was nice, Tuscaloosa. Um, today, we wrap up the uh, Elephant in the Room series. And um, hat or no hat, we have had you, for the last six weeks now, um, entering a contest to name the elephant. The elephant now has a name. We're happy to, to uh, tell you that good news. So the elephant uh, feels better about itself. Its self-worth has gone up tremendously. But we can't tell you that name today, and here's why. Because as I peruse the room, the winner's not here. Now, we promised you a major award if you win that naming contest. The major award is the elephant. So the winner gets the elephant, and will take that elephant home. The problem we ran into, though, is that the winning name came in not just once, not just twice, but three different people suggested the same name for the elephant. So we called the specialists at National Geographic, and they were working on it for us. And so the only way that we could possibly give out um, this particular award is to give it to the person who submitted the name first. It was the only just way we could figure out how to do it. That name has been given. It's in, but we will wait until that person is here so they can take their prize home with us and get it out of the building um, uh, but, it's, but it now has a name, um, and so you'll be notified via mail if you are the winner, so you can get here and make sure you get the, uh, get the prize, okay? Uh, but it has a name, um, and hat is not included, I don't believe. Is it? You want your hat back, right? Wendy, you don't want the hat back? Hat is included, apparently. Whose hat is that? Oh, that's your, your hat? You did that? Seriously? Seriously? Darian, that's your mama that did that. Oh, man, I, I, I'm, I'm beyond words here. Today, we land uh, this elephant series with a, a Bible study I think is going to be very important. It's going to be important um, for you in the room no matter what age you are. We're going to introduce a formula today, if you will, a set of principles that I think is going to help you in any walk of life. And so if you are a uh, a kid, a student who's trying to figure out life, those lessons, if you can remember them, will carry you a long way. If you are an adult that's just trying to process life and life is getting the best of you sometimes, this will help you. If you're a leader and you lead any organization, you work with people, this will be helpful for you. If you're a ministry like we are, we're trying to do what we need to do as we move to the future, this is helpful for us. And so there are some things that are foundational for us in here today, and I'll get to those in a minute. But this Bible study is called The Irresistible Impossible Elephant. The Irresistible Impossible Elephant. It is the last elephant in the room. They say that a picture is worth a thousand words. In 2006, a British artist named Bansky wanted to illustrate that. His, his goal was to illustrate the way that we deal with world problems. For him, it was world um, poverty and hunger. And so he designed this picture, and, and this was the picture uh, that was entitled The Elephant in the Room. Obviously, what he did is he painted the elephant the same way that he painted the wallpaper. And the concept behind it is there's something so obvious in the room, but if you just decorate it, you don't have to deal with it. And so that is a modern-day illustration of what an elephant in the room is. For us, we have been talking about things that um, are truths, if you will, things that are obvious, things that need to be said. But because no one wants to talk about them, they sit around and they linger uh, like an elephant in the room. And if you're not careful, you never have the conversations you need to have about them. And so today, we look at the last elephant. 
And it's an elephant that all of you have dealt with because all of you have faced circumstances or situations that you deemed, for whatever reason, to be impossible. All of us in our life have been in moments where we were over our heads and we knew it. All of us have faced situations that were bigger than we were and we knew it. Uh, All of us have been in those scenarios where we've looked at the circumstances and they were so overwhelming. They might be tempted to paralyze us and keep us from moving forward. And we know exactly what that's like. All of you have seen the impossible. You've looked it in the eye. How well you did with it, we'll see. But we've all seen it. This is an elephant we're all familiar with. And so this is something that each one of us can take something from, I hope, and apply it to our life in the here and now. Um, many of you have watched American Idol over the years. A number of contests go on like that. There was one uh, more local contest that took place, and uh, an artist got up to sing in front of three different judges. As the artist began to sing, um, something became obvious. What became obvious is the person couldn't sing. Um, the entire audition was off pitch, painful to hear. Uh, major earlobes ache. The panel of judges sat in stunned silence. They waited until the painful song came mercifully to an end. And the judge in the middle stood up and gave the person singing a rousing ovation. The other judges stared at their fellow judge. The stagehands came and they kind of moved the contestant out. And finally, after the room was empty, the judge said, how could you applaud such a pathetic voice? I mean, that was awful. It was terrible. And the judge said, well, I wasn't praising the young man's voice. I was praising the young man for the courage to get up in public and do what he just did. Because sometimes it takes guts to step up and do something. Now, for many of you, if you had to sing at an audition, it would be that kind of experience. It would take an incredible amount of guts. It would seem impossible. But for us today, we're going to go to a passage of Scripture in Matthew 14, 25 through 32, that is in Scripture a very well-known passage. It's a spectacular passage, but don't kid yourself. It is an impossible passage. It is loaded with impossibility. And it is so impossible that hopefully today we will take a different look at it and give you a fresh perspective of it so that when we're done, you will walk away with a better feel, a better handle on how to handle the impossible when it comes in your life. And so you start thinking about all those places, all those areas where you're trying to lead and figure things out and solve things and then take this and put it on top of it. And I think you'll have something to work with when we're done today. The passage reads as follows. Uh, Keep your Bibles and apps open. We'll unpack it a verse at a time in a few minutes. It says this. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost. They cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come out to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. And then Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and he began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Today is about attempting the impossible, and I want to be as transparent as I can this morning. This, this, this Bible study, every once in a while you teach one that's a little bit more personal to you. This one is personal to me because it incorporates some philosophical things about my life, the way I view life, the way I try to lead, uh, and you'll understand that in just a minute. But the impossible to me is extremely irresistible. I'm one of those guys where if it hasn't been tried, I want to try it. If it hasn't been done, I want to do it. If somebody says you can't do that, oh, I'm the guy wanting to do it. I am the proverbial wet paint, sure, sweat. You want to try it just to make sure. I want to be that guy. I want to be that guy. There's something about the impossible that really is irresistible to me. I'm fascinated by it. I can't walk away from it. I love to be stretched. That's me. And that's a personality thing. And then that's fine. Um, the dictionary says the impossible is something that's extremely difficult to perform. A task that is extremely overwhelming or difficult to perform. A slogan in World War II came along and we're familiar with it today. If it's difficult, it will take a day or two. If it's impossible, it will take a little longer. But the idea behind it was in the war effort, it will get done. It's going to happen. 
Jesus talked about this. And if you want to know how to deal with the impossible, it's good to remember that the Bible is loaded with conversation and instruction about the impossible. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 18, 27. What is impossible with men is possible with God. What's impossible with men is possible with God. If um, you've been around here long enough, you've heard me say this so many times that you can say it with me. It is the way that we try to be who God has called us to be. It's the way that we're to live life. It's the way that we uh, lead. It is that, that, that guiding thing that runs in the background of all our lives. It, I say as almost like a mantra sometimes, but I don't want you to lose the impact of what it means. It's simply this. Direction, not intention, gets you to your destination. If you've been here longer than a month and a half, you've heard me say that somewhere in the context of a Bible study somewhere. Direction, not intention, gets you to your destination. We live in a world of people who have great intentions, but if they don't set the direction on something, they never get there. Spiritually, you are exactly where you aim to be. The direction you have set for your life is where you are spiritually right now. It happens and works in every area of your life. It's a no-fail policy, right? You, You figure out the direction you want to go, and you have to move past good intentions to get there. That's the way we live life. Recently, I shared something with our staff first, and then last weekend I shared it with our board here at the Church of 434. It's something that I started playing with back during the pandemic. I got serious about it sometime after the pandemic, and my quest was to go into God's Word and to look at the scenarios where God stepped in and led people to do something. What did that look like? How did they do the impossible? How does those things that are bigger than you are happen in Scripture? And so I want to share that with you, and then I'm going to unpack it over the next couple of minutes. It's very simple. Impossible is that moment where you realize that you're getting ready to do something that's bigger than you are. As an individual, you've been in a set of circumstances where it seems like the odds are overwhelming against you. Uh, you have nothing uh, in, in your mind that helps prepare you for this moment. So you're facing something that could be scary, it could be big. It's an impossible scenario. You can define impossible, but the impossible is there. Once you realize that something is impossible, I think if God has his hands in it, then something else begins to happen. The impossible becomes improbable. In other words, after you've come and dealt with the impossible, then all of a sudden, You begin to see that there might be a way. You begin to discover, okay, well, if it were going to happen, this is how it would happen. But you know, you you can't do it. But if God's in the mix, if God is there, if you're praying over it and you're looking at it and you're really studying hard, all of a sudden, what was impossible, you would then move to the improbable category. This is where the work is done. You say, you know, that's going to be tough. That's really improbable. I don't think we can get there from here. This is going to be hard. I mean, if this would happen, this would have to fall in place. This would have to happen. I'd have to do this. I have to do this. God would have to show up and do this. All those things begin to happen, but all of a sudden, whatever you're looking at has moved from impossible to improbable. But once you work on that improbable piece, once the improbable starts to take place, then all of a sudden as you start doing the groundwork, the heavy work, the rolling up your sleeves and the lifting on it, and you start moving forward because you know that God has called you to do it, it moves from the improbable to the inevitable. In other words, you don't know when it's going to happen. You don't know how it's going to happen exactly, but you simply know this. You're working on it, you're doing it, and it's inevitable it's going to take place. Great example of this. In the Bible, Noah. God says, I'm going to destroy the world. I want you to build a boat. What is that going to look like? And it's going to rain. The world's going to flood. Noah, he'd never seen rain. I mean, the scenario is impossible. The creator of the universe has spoken to me. He's told me to build a big boat because he's going to destroy the world with rain. Had no idea what rain was. Had no idea how big the world was. And yet, he said, okay, I guess. And all of a sudden, God began to put the pieces in place for him to start doing the improbable, which was build a big boat. And for well over 100 years, Noah, not Moses, as I said at 9 o'clock, but I did say they talked on the phone. Noah began building this boat. 
And in spite of the criticism, in spite of all the people saying, what are you doing? That's crazy. You've lost your mind. It's not going to happen. Uh, and you can put animals on it. Where are the animals going to come from? You prove every animal, every kind. That, that's going to happen? Sure, that's going to happen because they're all running around your zoo here, right? You know, and it's just not there. But the improbable all of a sudden becomes something he begins to aim at. And then the improbable turns into the inevitable. God says, okay, here they come. And he sends the animals. Those animals start showing up two by two in line like they're supposed to. No lion tamer. No pig, pig wrangling. They just go. And then Noah's built a boat and he has that realization at some point. Now, I don't know if you ever caught this in scripture or not. But Noah has this moment where he's like, this boat is so big and that door is so heavy. I can't close that door. And he gets in the ark and then. God closes the door. And it starts to rain. What was impossible 100 years before, because he did the work, became improbable. And all of a sudden, the inevitable happened. And Noah saved humanity because God had a plan. Now, in your life and our life, it, it, that may not be that spectacular, and hopefully it's not. <laughs> hopefully your impossible doesn't involve the entire destruction of civilization as we know it. But if it does, feel free to share. But the, um, our impossibles look a little different than that. It could be job scenarios. It could be relationship scenarios. It could be situations that you're dealing with, 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 with loved ones, extended family, friends. It, it could be a work environment where you're trying to take and take, move an organization to the next level. For ministry, you're trying to do the next step in ministry. All those kind of things come into play. And I want you to understand that there's a philosophy that you have to embrace. It's a way that you live life. And I would suggest to you that if you're a follower, it might not be a bad idea to go back and play with that biblical model I just shared with you. Because there seems to be something about the way that God works where he takes what is impossible, he moves it to improbable, and then it becomes inevitable. And it's your job to decide what you're going to do with that. Most of us have a philosophy in life that is not expressed in words, however. It's expressed in the choices and the decisions that we make. It's not what you say about how you live. It's what you do with your life. And I want you to understand Although the culture will not agree with me, and all the cult, although the culture will not say the same thing I'm getting ready to say to you, you need to hear what I'm going to say. The choices and decisions that you make are yours and yours alone. No one makes a decision for you. And although the culture wants to blame everything on somebody else, here's what you have to understand. You've got to own it. It's your responsibility. The choices that you make are your responsibility. Does culture influence them? Sure it does. A lot of circumstances will influence them. But the choices that you make, what you do with those circumstances, what you do with those situations, you have to own. And in a day and age where no one wants to own anything, where it's always somebody else's fault, somebody else has done this, somebody else is responsible for this, we like to back away and say, well, I I can't do anything about this. This is an impossible scenario, and, and it's out of my hands. And I want you to know, biblically, that's hogwash. Because if God has called you to do something, he's called you for a reason that's not impossible. And you then have to decide, am I going to take the responsibility and do something with that and step up and be who I'm supposed to be or will I not? And that's on you. Not me. Not the person sitting next to you. That's on you. And you can whine. You can gripe. You can complain about it. You can wring your hands and say, it's awful. We'll all pat you on the back and say, oh, it is. But it is your responsibility. And so this is all about whether or not you're willing to be a person who's willing to live whatever scenario God has for you. And sometimes that means stepping into the impossible. And so that's what we're going to look at. Uh, the first thing I want you to see is I want you to see the impossible because this passage is loaded with it. And I want to point those th- some things out as we move through it. But go back to verse 25. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus said immediately, take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. Now I stop there, and I say this is an impossible situation, and here's why. 
got to remember the setting here. Jesus has told the disciples to get into a boat. They are going and they're out in the boat. And they're there because it's where they're supposed to be. And yet a storm has come up and they are afraid. They're afraid of the storm. The storm is bad. The storm is big. These are experienced fishermen, some of them. But they are fearful that they might die. Jesus then, for whatever reason, uh, because he was praying and because he had been by himself, he was now deciding that in the middle of the storm, now was the time to come out to them. And, and Jesus has his reasons for doing this. He's going to teach a lesson. We know that. I, I, his timing is always perfect. We know that about God. We trust that. It just seems a little odd to me, but again, I'm not God, which is why that works, right? And so Jesus walks out on the water. He comes out in the middle of a storm because that's a good time to come out and meet his best friends in a boat in the middle of a storm. And they see him. And the Bible says they're terrified. And they think he's a ghost. Now, I know some of you are real spiritual. And you're sitting there thinking, yeah, if it were me in that boat, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, eh, I wouldn't be afraid if Jesus came out of the water. I'd say, hey, Jesus, come on out. Help me out and let's get in the boat. The disciples have no frame of reference for a man walking on the water in the middle of the storm. It's never happened before. There's nothing in their gray matter that has a place to put that on a shelf somewhere and say, well, I can understand this experience because this has happened. See, any experience in your life, you process through your other experiences. Anything that happens to you, you go back and you, you lock it to something that you can connect to. And then you use that experience and you put it on a shelf somewhere and you compartmentalize whatever's happening so you can process it the world around you. That's the way that we all live our life. That's normal. That's the way that God has created us. So we've got to cut the disciples some slack. Because they ain't seen this before. Nobody's seen this before. It's not normal behavior for someone to be out walking on the water. And so they're afraid and they think he's a ghost because they think they're going to die. This is some of that, that, that Jewish superstition background coming out in them. We're a little scared now. I mean, uh, now we're in a storm and we got ghosties on the water. And so Jesus then gives them a command. Take courage. Don't be afraid. It's I. And I want you to know, I'm like, hold on, stop the story. I'm in a boat and I think I'm going to die. And your command to me, Lord Jesus, is take courage, don't be afraid. Can we do a little more than that? I mean, you ever been in a situation where things are bad and someone just gives you good advice? You're scared to death. Like, come on, don't be afraid, it's going to be okay. You're hurting really bad and the world's falling apart. They just say, oh, suck it up, buttercup. Or then instead of that, they want to tell you a story about what happened to them. Oh, I know exactly how you feel because one day I was going through this and this happened to me. And oh my goodness, it was terrible. But I made it through. Now, your situation is nowhere near as bad as mine. I've just told you a worse scenario. I was okay. You'll be okay too, sweetheart. We do stuff like that all the time. And not any of that changes our circumstances. And notice that when Jesus says, take courage, it's I... He knows they think he's a ghost. They know that he's afraid. But you know what? There's still a storm going on. They're still afraid. And Jesus has commanded them to do something that for the most part is impossible. Because I don't know how you live, but I just can't turn fear off like that. I don't have a switch where I go, boop, and all of a sudden fear is gone. That's not the way it works. Again, you may be more special than me. And maybe you figured out a way to handle that. But there's a command that has just been ushered across a storm into a boat where a bunch of guys are afraid and he's been told, don't be afraid. And what are they going to do with that? That's impossible. And I want you to know that impossible situations are common in life. And when you face them, we all tend to do what we all tend to do. We look to those people who are close to us. In the boat that day are a bunch of disciples and they're all scared together. There's not one disciple in that bunch that's standing boldly at the front of the boat going, don't be afraid, we'll be fighting, boys. It's not happening. They are wet and they are cold and it's a mess. And now they've got a ghost on the water saying, don't be afraid, it's I. And somebody recognizes that I as Jesus. 
but they're still scared. You know, and I know, that there are people that if your storm is coming, you want to be in the boat with them. There are people who, who are able to get you up and encourage you, and there's other people that just drag you down and they wear you out. I want you to know that in life, and I'm going to give you a heard that right here. This will be the 13th. There's only one more coming after this. Uh, as you live life, you learn, need to learn to get advice from the VIPs, not the VDPs. Now, don't mess up your notes by writing VIP down as a very uh, important person. VIP, in this case, is a very inspiring person. Get your advice from a very inspiring person, not from a very draining person. Stay away from the very draining people. You know people that just drain you? When you're around them, they just, they just, they just, they just wear you out. I mean, it's, it's never good. It's always bad. It takes so much energy. VIPs are going to be optimistic. They're going to be positive thinkers. VDPs are negative thinkers. They are pessimists, to say the least. They are the yeah buts. That's a dangerous tribe, by the way. If you've ever seen them, you need to stay away from them. Uh, they're a nomadic group. They infiltrate every area of life. Businesses, church, families. They're, they're all there. They're the kind of people that when... You're trying to have a conversation about God. You know, this would be a great idea and God would do it. This is the person out there that calls himself a realist. And so while you're sharing what it is that God has called you to do, you know, that's a good idea, but yeah, but. And they've always got a yeah, but. Always got a reason it's not going to work. Always got something to say that's going to be, just going to burst your bubble. You know, their facts are going to destroy your fantasy. Right? I mean, you've got this great idea of it. And they're that kind of person, and they think they're doing you a favor. Eh, you got to be careful. If they're an inspiring person, they will take and redirect you. If they're a draining person, they're just looking to flush the toilet handle on your idea. And you've got to decide who that is, and you've got to decide what kind of person uh, you want to be around. See, great ideas tend to show up in the ideas that others have overlooked. And no idea is as overlooked as the unthinkable or the impossible. I'm afraid that sometimes in our life as followers, God is calling us to do the impossible. But because we don't have any way to frame it or understand it, we just look at it, glance at it, and keep moving on. Because we've surrounded ourselves with draining people who say, yeah, that's a good idea, but yeah, but somebody else has got to do that. And I wonder sometimes how much we've missed out on because we haven't jumped into the call of God in our life and embraced what he wants us to do because it was just too big and we never took the time to go through the process of seeing, is this something that I can have the courage to do? Is this something that somehow there's a way to get there? Am I going to pray about this? I'm going to look at it close. I'm really going to kind of tear it apart and see what can be done about that. A pessimist sometimes, or a pessimist according to Winston Churchill, sees the difficulty in every opportunity. An optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. If I were to say to you, have you ever heard of the Titanic? Show of hands, you ever heard of the Titanic? Wouldn't it be awesome right now if we could say, you know, the Titanic was just a footnote in history. I mean, we've seen it. We've seen the movie, right? I mean, the movie actually was longer than the entire ship's journey. Uh, the movie was like nine hours long. I think the ship was only on water like 15 minutes. But and it was a, a tragic film. We lost Leonardo DiCaprio because, because Kate Winslet wouldn't let him float on the same floaty she was on. Instead, she said, Leo, you grab that piece of wood, you're going to drown. Why didn't she say, well, why don't you hold on to this with me? We can float out of here together. Oh, no, no, no. We'll just let Leo say, hold on, Rose. As he disappears between the cold, murky water and Titanic. They're still looking for his body. Um, on April 15th, we've just passed that day. You think it might have been tax day, but it really was the day that the massive ship quickly sank on its maiden voyage. Recently, scientists have discovered that the builder of the Titanic was going through something that we're familiar with, a supply chain crisis. And what they needed to build the Titanic they, were some rivets 
and riveters so they could get the ships built. The company was the Harland and Wolf Company and they were building at the same time, simultaneously, that's what the same time means, three different ships. They were building the Titanic, which you're familiar with, the Olympic, and the Britannic. And each of those ships required millions of rivets that literally would hold them together. The shortage of rivets hit its peak during the construction of the Titanic. Normally, a rivet would have been made of a uh, standard steel. But inferior rivets had to be produced, made of steel and iron. And they were less than sturdy. But in order to fulfill the orders to get these ships built, those were the rivets that were sent. New information suggests that had the proper rivets been used on the Titanic, what might have happened that day was a clumsy glancing blow off an iceberg. But if the proper rivets had been used, it wouldn't have ripped the ship apart and it wouldn't have sank. Now, is that true? Who knows? Because you can't go back and undo it. But the point is, a rivet's not a big deal. It's a small detail. But millions of small details makes all the difference in the world. And in our life, sometimes, we have to make sure that we're listening and doing the right things because if we're not careful, they'll sink us. VIPs will inspire you and help you see the impossible. VDPs will sink your life. When you understand the dynamics of how faith works, you begin to live inspired and driven by God. You begin to look for the details in those big things that God is doing, and you take the time to look at those details because it is in the details sometimes that you begin to come up with the plan that God has for how it's going to take place, which brings me to the next thing. The improbable. Verse 28 to 29a. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. I am convinced that Scripture only gives us part of the conversation. If you've seen The Chosen, and we've talked about that so many times before, you know, they, they actually add a little bit of a backstory here. Because I think that we, in Scripture we get what we need. Right? That just makes sense. God tells us what we need to know so we can learn and so we can move on. This is God's Word. But you know, there's a whole lot of conversation in the boat. And even before Peter got out, I was, I'm thinking he's yelling out there and talking to Jesus just a little bit before he gets to this moment. Because I don't think Peter was just sitting there just going, well, hey, if it's you, let me come on out there. I mean, not the most characteristic thing Peter would have done, although Im- impulsive, yes. And I can see Jesus looking back at him and doing that. And all of a sudden, Peter's going to come out on the water. And there's a moment where we begin to see and hear the things that we don't have in Scripture. How many guys in that boat said, don't get out of this boat, Peter? How many disciples, and you know they said it, said, have you lost your mind? You can't walk on water. Again, no frame of reference for what's getting ready to be done. And Peter has enough faith to say, look, I'd rather be out there with you in the storm than stuck in this boat with these 11 stooges. But Peter's still in the boat. He hasn't gotten out yet. Because it's one thing when Jesus says, come on. Then comes that sudden realization of, I have to get there from here. I mean, you ever had something that you prayed for, and all of a sudden you prayed for it a long, long time, and after you prayed for it and you got it, you thought, well, what am I going to do with it now? I mean, you've wanted it all your life. That's what I want. That's what I want. That's going to make me happy. That's going to make me bring me joy. And God says, okay, I'm going to give it to you. What are you going to do with it now? See, Israel did it with a king. <laughs> that didn't go very well. But sometimes you got that moment where, okay, God says, let's do it. Let's do this thing. You're ready. Let's, let's go. Yeah. What's going to happen now? Some of you know the song. It was out in the 50s. Remade again in the 60s. It's a song 
uh, the lion's in and say, now the end is near, so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear, state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. I did it my way. Um, Elvis did it. Before he did it, Frank Sinatra did it. Sinatra made it a hit before Elvis came along. Elvis should have learned the lesson. The singer, Sinatra, Old Blue Eyes, died in May of 1998 at the age of 82. Um, when he died, everyone said, they've said till this day, there'll never be another Sinatra. There's not, because he's dead. But when Frank died, he left his family and friends in a world full of fans who've grieved his loss. They still listen to his music. He left behind millions of dollars in cash and assets, cars, houses, land, and stock. He uh, left all of his platinum and gold records and his Grammys and his Oscar. But when Frank Sinatra lay dying in a hospital, his family and closest friends were in the room with him and they were encouraging him to fight to live. And they said, Frank, fight. You keep fighting. You keep fighting. You keep fighting. And the last words of Frank Sinatra to his family and friends was he opened his eyes widely and looked back at them and uttered these two words, I'm losing. They're telling him to fight. And he looks back at them and says, I'm losing. And Frank Sinatra died. And in that moment, he steps into heaven, or into eternity, and he stands before Jesus. And Jesus does what Jesus will do with all of us. Why should I let you into my heaven? And here's what I wonder and what I think about and what bothers me as much as anything else in the entire world, really, when I think about the people I love and the people I know. When Frank stood before Jesus and Jesus said, why should I let you into my heaven? I promise you, he didn't say, well, I did it my way. But how many of us try to blow through life, past the things that God has for us, and pride ourselves on doing it our way? I want you to hear me very carefully. If you're living life your way, hear me. You're an idiot. Because why would you ever live the life that God gave you your way and not his way? See, my way is one of the dumbest songs ever written, and there's been a lot of them. But it ranks right up there in all-time dumb songs because it's a great proclamation, a testimony to how badly we will blunder our life if we're not careful. You live your life your way. You are a fool. You live your life God's way. And then you got a life worth talking about. And so when we come to moments where we start looking at how God works and what he wants to do in our life, we have to decide I want to live and I want my life to be everything that it's supposed to be. See, people get nervous about having dreams and visions for their life. And I don't know if you ever get that way or not. Because if I, when I start talking about dreams sometimes, people say, well, Jeff, I don't have any dreams. Or I, I don't really have a big vision. And, and I want you to know something. That's okay. I'm going to let you off the hook today. But here's what you've got to hear. I promise you this. God has a vision for your life. Even if you don't understand it all. Even if you don't see it all. You don't have to worry about creating your own vision and dreams. God has one for your life. You just have to say yes. See, we're back to our responsibility, our choices again. You just have to say yes. And once you do, then all of a sudden you're free to attempt the impossible. Peter did not get out of the boat until Jesus said, come on out here. He started by being afraid. He had mustered up enough courage to say, I want to be out there with you. And Jesus said, all right, let's go. Peter didn't get out there and negotiate the deal later. He waited until the command came. And I want you to understand, somewhere in the midst of the improbable comes that understanding that, you know what, you're doing the right thing. It's tough, it's going to be hard, but you keep doing the right thing because it matters. Which brings us to the inevitable. Because see, we know we can't do the impossible in our own strength, so then we get to the inevitable. Verse 29 through 32. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on water, and came toward Jesus. This is his inevitable moment. I, 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 I see this, and I often ponder this moment as well, because it's one thing when Jesus says, come out in the water. It's entirely different to put your first leg over the side of the boat and feel the water on your feet. And to kind of slide out on the side of that boat 
And then put all your full weight, not half weight, full weight. See, when I fly on planes, I never put my full weight on the plane because I'm afraid. <laughs> I've never flown with my full weight on a plane seat. It doesn't happen. I'm always hedging my bets. But you have to put your full weight on that one leg to get that other leg over the side of the boat. I don't think you have to think about mechanics of getting in and out of a boat. So Peter has to put his full weight on that one leg. And what did he think in that moment when it didn't sink? See, I don't know about you, but I'd probably wet my pants. Whose <laughs> words? He looked back at John and he went, <laughs> but that's what he does because he, he didn't like John as much as we think he did. But other than that, then he, then he turns and he looks toward Jesus and he begins walking on the water. It's an amazing moment. Reminds us of a truth that we need to remember. If you're going to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. You don't do the impossible by staying in the boat. And a lot of us never get out. We never move by faith beyond what we know. We choose the safety of the boat instead of chasing that thing that God has for us. And life is a journey. And if you think that God created you to keep doing reruns of what you did the day before, you don't know God very well. He's placed you here for a purpose. Yesterday is gone. Today is the day. How do I know that? Well, the Bible says his mercies are new each day. The mercies I needed yesterday, I don't need today. Because today's a brand new day. God's going to do a new thing today. He's going to take you somewhere you haven't been yet. He's going to show you something that he hasn't shown you yet. You're moving to a brand new something. See, I've always been amazed when church folks uh, get in that mindset of, well, we just kind of like the way things are. That's really closely associated with, well, we've never tried it that way before. It's that idea that, well, you know, we're, we're just fine right here. And I want you to know, we've talked enough about this to know that there's a culture out there that desperately needs to know and who needs to know who God is and what he can do. And God has called us to touch and change the world with love of Christ. What we did yesterday was fun, but that was last weekend. That was WrestleMania. Battle of good and evil continues on this weekend. What are we going to do now? And God is always calling us to move forward, always calling us to be something beyond where we are. Jesus looked at Peter and said, hey, come on out here. But you know that was prompted by the question, God, is there something you want me to do? Tell me. See, I think it's one of the most overlooked moments in that whole story. What was it about Peter that said, Lord, if that's you, tell me to come out there. I mean, I got to give the guy props. He was willing to ask the big question. See, we don't ask that question because we're afraid of the answer sometimes, right? We don't really ask God, what do you want me to do? Because we're afraid when the answer comes, we might not want to do it. And I guarantee you between the question and Peter getting out of the boat, there was a whole lot of gray matter happening. (laughs) I'm sure he's thinking, I shouldn't ask that question. Because Peter, again, still, he's terrified. In that moment where he has to get out and he has to move, and in verse 30 we see it, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You <laughs> little faith. Why did you doubt? When they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Peter, and you know this, I and mean, this is, Bible tells us this, when he lost his focus, he looked at the wind, he quit focusing on Jesus, he sank. In our lives, we do exactly the same thing, right? I mean, if we don't focus where it needs to be, we get in trouble. Let me give you the last word that. It's this one. Follow his calling, not the circumstance. Follow his calling, not the circumstance. See, a lot of us in life allow circumstances to dictate what we do. I want you to know that you need to follow the call of God in your life. And let that dictate what you do, not the circumstances. And when you're trying to do the impossible, for goodness sakes, keep your eyes on Jesus. See, it's easy to criticize him because he sank. I don't think Jesus was screaming at him when he said, You have no faith, why did you go? I don't think he went all football coach on him. 
I think it was much more gentle than that. I think as he lifted Peter back up and you got it, got, the scenario was there, right? Jesus reaches down. Jesus is standing on top of the water. He reaches down. He pulls Peter up and pulls Peter up full standing on top of the water with him. So Peter's not just walked on the water once. He's now walked on the water twice because he's got to walk back to the boat. And I think that Jesus, as they're taking that walk, says, oh, you little faith. Why did you doubt as he's walking him back to the boat? See, I'm going to cut Peter a lot of slack. Because when I read this story, here's what I know about Peter. He's only the second person in all of human history to walk on water. The first one was Jesus. The second was Peter. I'd like to be that guy. I would like to be that guy that would be willing to get out of the boat and walk on water just because Jesus said, come on out here. Because that's how the impossible happens. Somebody's got to be willing to get out of the boat. I think it's interesting too. The disciples all learned this lesson. I mean, they got it. They saw it. But it did take one of them getting out of the boat to get it. If there ever was a moment that Peter became the leader of the disciples, this was that moment. There's a lot of other hints. There's a lot of other things. Peter was obviously close with Jesus. I mean, they're close friends. But if there's ever a moment where Peter became their undisputed leader, I think it was here. And don't kid yourself. Peter was tragically broken like the rest of us. He didn't let him forget it. Because I guarantee after Jesus was gone back to heaven and Peter was in charge. I'm sure at the weekly staff meeting of the disciples. Peter at some point would have ushered the phrase, uttered the phrase something like, hey now, I tell you what, this is a decision. Any of you in the room who walked on water, we'll do the deciding. Well, wait, that's only me. Okay, I'll take care of this. Oh, I think he reminded the rest of the guys this a lot. But I think this is the moment that he emerged and became something very different. Back in the 1950s, David Broadbent performed a fairly simple experiment. He used a set of headphones and he did several different set test subjects with these headphones. And they put on a headphone on each side of their head at the same time. And he would send two different messages. One through the right ear, one through the left ear. The test was simple. What did they hear? As he did the test, the results are exactly what you would expect. For each and every one of the test subjects, they could both... Hear, they could hear voices in both of their ears. But they could only listen to one voice at a time. They could hear the noise. But when it came to listening and processing, they could only process one voice. We do the same thing to this day. God says, forgive as you've been forgiven. How many times do you have another voice in your head saying, I'm going to get them back if I get a chance? It's not right what they did to me. Here's one I like. They disrespected me. Two different voices. Which one are you listening to? God says, seek me first. That other voice that screams in our head, it's all about you. You're the one. It's all about you. It's about you. Make it about you. The voice that says, all things work together for good. And the other voice that we're listening to says, God, I can't handle this. You say, well, those, those aren't confl- they are conflicting. Because see, when God says all things work together for good, that means the bad stuff too. See, that means the stuff that you can't handle. That means the stuff that's overwhelming to you, the impossible. God says, I'm going to work it together for good. Which voice are you listening to? Just as no one can serve two masters, Jesus said it this way. My sheep, he said, listen to my voice. Today and throughout the day, 
throughout this week. There are going to be at least two voices, if not more, in your head trying to get your attention. Which one will you engage? It is impossible to do the impossible without God's help. If you can do it, take your own self and go do it. You don't need God. But if you realize you need him, understand that God has prepared tremendous blessings to each one of us when we attempt great things for him. Ephesians 3.20 says this, God is able to do super abundantly, far and above all that we dare ask or think, infinitely beyond our highest prayers, our greatest desires, our thoughts, our hopes, or our dreams. If you're a follower, that ought to be irresistible. To know that God wants to do something amazing with us. And so I say bring on tomorrow. Let's chase and let's do the impossible. Let's pray. God, you have blazed that trail for us, the impossible. Become something that we can experience, we can do, we can enjoy, and we can talk about because you're in the mix. And Lord, I pray that you would make the impossible irresistible to us. That we would be that group of people that look at what could be, what you're doing, begin to connect the dots and see how you're at work around us. Well, for some, the impossible right now is an eternity away because they've never made the decision to believe and trust and follow you. They've never accepted the gift that you gave to us on cross. Paying the price for our sins and then beating death by coming back to life and leaving an empty grave so that we could have eternal life. If there's someone in this room this morning who's never made that decision, I pray that before they would leave, they would simply share with us by giving us a response page from a worship flyer that says, I want to accept Jesus as Savior. They put in the giving kiosk on the way out. We'll be able to contact them and talk with them about that decision. Lord, if you're watching online, I pray that they would simply send us an email. And say, I want to accept Jesus as Savior. I have to do that. Because that's where the journey begins. But Lord, for many in this room, we're on the journey. But we don't look for the impossible very often. Sometimes we're fearful of the impossible. Sometimes we try to ignore the impossible. And yet it is in those impossible moments that we discover that you do some of your most amazing work. And so Lord, help us not to fear the impossible. Not to resist it. But to embrace it with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.